We are this morning, I want to start off by reading in John chapter 13. That's not the place that the scripture reading was in, but it'll be very useful background to us as we consider today's message. So uh, if you turn to John chapter um, 13, and uh, I want us to look up in the chapter here. Um, let's see where we want to start this. Um, yes, let's start with verse 18. So look at John 13, 18, and Jesus says this. Now, you know this comes from the context of the upper room discourse and sort of finds its way, weaves its way, according to John's narration, into the, uh, into the, uh, the, the, the Last Supper type of a, a, a time frame and atmosphere. And in verse 18, he, he makes this statement, I speak not of you all. I know whom I have chosen, but that the Scripture may be fulfilled he that eateth bread with me hath lifted up his heel against me. Now I tell you before it come, that when it come to pass, ye may believe that I am he. Let's skip verse 20. We'll read verse 21 and several verses thereafter. When Jesus had thus said, he was troubled in spirit and testified, saying, Verily, verily, I say unto you that one of you shall betray me. Then the disciples looked on one another, doubting of whom he spake. Now, he, there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of the disciples whom Jesus loved. Simon Peter, therefore, beckoned to him that he should ask who it should be of whom he spake. He then, lying on Jesus' breast, saith unto him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, He it is to whom I shall give a sop when I have dipped it. And when he had dipped the sop, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, and after the sop, Satan entered into him. Then said Jesus unto him, That thou doest, do quickly. Now no man at the table knew for what intent he spake this unto him. For some of them thought, because Judas had the bag, that Jesus had said unto him, Buy those things that we have need of over against the feast, that he should, or that he should give something to the poor. He then, having received the sop, went immediately out, and it was night. So we'll end our reading here, and then I'll ask you to flip back over to Matthew chapter 26. I'd like to call out two verses here, then we'll have a word of prayer. From our reading earlier, notice with me verse number 22 once again, where it says, And they were exceeding sorrowful, and began every one of them to say unto him, Lord, is it I? Now drop down to verse 25. Then Judas, which betrayed him, answered and said, Master, is it I? He said unto him, Thou hast said. Let's join in prayer, shall we? Father, we thank you again for this day. Thank you for a wonderful and pleasant start to the morning with the moderate temperatures. And Father, again, we just thank you for your wonderful goodness to us, knowing that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, in whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. And thank you that regardless of what our days bring, regardless of how full and burdened at times our hearts are, we know that you're with us, and we know that you're good. Thank you that we can be assured of that, for the Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting. His truth endures to all generations. May our time spent together in the house of the Lord this morning be of encouragement and help to us. You know us, Lord. You read us like a book. You understand exactly where we are and what we need. And so I pray, Father, you just minister to us. No matter how full and burdened our hearts may be today, I pray, Lord, that you will just relieve us of those concerns for the moment and help us to focus on what you may have for us, knowing that even 
thereby you may see fit to address some of those things. And if not, we know you have other things for us now that's your will for us to open our minds and our hearts to. May as we hear your word, we have a, a spirit of response and submission. Would you guide us? Would you bless us? And Lord, truly, if anybody would be here this morning and not know Jesus as personal Savior, we want always to make our prayer that the gospel will be clear in this place. An invitation will always be given. Men and women and boys and girls will know they're in a place where they can find people who can explain to them, answer their questions about how to have eternal life, even hear that from the pulpit. And just pray, Father, you'll bless us now in Jesus' wonderful and holy name. Amen. They asked him this. Well, we are continuing to look at some of these questions. Matthew chapter 26, I think, is rather interesting because it's like what we saw before with Matthew chapter 19. And then I think we saw it again with Matthew chapter 22, I believe it is, 21 or 22, where, interestingly, we saw uh, three questions in each of those chapters. And you remember the one of them were questions that the disciples all ask. Another one, the other, the second one of those was one where uh, they were all questions that were asked by Jesus' critics or his adversaries. But back in chapter 26 now, where we are in Matthew, once again, these are questions that proceed from the disciples. And this is the second one now that we've seen in this chapter. So uh, we're looking at one that comes from a familiar story, of course. In fact, they've gathered for the Passover, so we've kind of seen the progression of time as we've been, to some extent, moving through Matthew's gospel. Uh, we'll go back later, and we'll perhaps drop back in time, if need be, to pick up as we have opportunity, ones that were not covered here that we didn't reference as being in parallel accounts. Once in a while, you'll have one of the gospels that will include a question. We saw that before, that the other ones don't. So if we have time, we'll do that. But nevertheless, um, in the story here this morning, uh, we find this account in Matthew's gospel. It's familiar to us. We've kind of moved through now uh, into the what we call Holy, Holy Week or uh, uh, Passover week, Passion Week. And uh, you f we find ourselves now really on the Thursday evening because now in the story preceding, Jesus has given instruction to his disciples. They go and find this upper room that uh, the Lord tells them and has made some sort of separate arrangements with the owner and he tells them now to go and, and prepare and they come together. So in John's gospel, we have a whole big long section, the upper room discourse, but it all sort of comes out of this time that get that time frame set in your mind. It sort of helps a little bit to understand exactly where we are. Where, where we are. Now, into this private, intimate time that Jesus is spending with his disciples, because this is really going to be the last opportunity, other than Gethsemane, that he spends time with them before the cross. And into this intimate time of Jesus instructing his disciples, Jesus drops what can only be called a bombshell. When he makes the statement, as we read there in Matthew chapter 26, and verse number 21, and as they did eat, verily I say unto you that one of you shall betray me. Can you imagine the impact of those words and what they must have had on that group of 12 men? We're going to talk more about that as we get into it. But as I said, it can, it can only be described as an absolute bombshell. What reaction do they have? Well, that's what we're reading about in these few short verses of the Matthew account where they begin to question among themselves. And first of all, they begin to question among themselves, and then we work our way down and find out that then Judas also asks concerning himself, the Lord, 
responds to that. And so what I would like to do with the message this morning is broaden this out a little bit. We're going to look at the particulars, of course, but what I really want to drive towards in this message is, is, all right, on the one hand, think of the word revelation. On the other hand, think of the word response. Because what we have in Jesus' statement here is a revelation. You can call it a specific one. You can even go so far as to call it a warning. You can broaden it out to say that it's just like hearing the Bible. It's just like hearing a message. It's like hearing any word that God has for us. Because this is Jesus speaking. And so he's revealing something to them. He tells them about the fact that one of them is going to betray them. Well, again, as I say, if when we broaden this out and look for the personal application to ourselves, there are many things that we can find, but we know that God, for us, God is in the regular business of revealing things to us. Revelation. We're fortunate today to have a copy of his word, are we not? So we have God's revelation, and anytime we want to, we can sit down and see what it is that God has to say to us, and we can pray over it, and we can ask him to speak to us. And so many times God is so faithful and does that, and and many times we have our Bible reading, and maybe nothing leaps off the page, and there are other times God brings back things to us later, and we think about that. Or there are times when sometimes you read a passage as you've read a hundred times before, never thought about something, and it's like it just jumps off the page and knocks you over with the thing that God has that he wants to say to you. This is God's revelation. But then the question comes, okay, we're going to think about on the one hand revelation, but over here, how do we respond to that? Because that's exactly what God is looking for. I've said this many times as we have have had the occasion to look at future type things. God is not in the habit of revealing things to us just to satisfy our curiosity. The Bible isn't given to us just as a fact book. We should never treat it that way. I mean, there are many facts to know, and it doesn't hurt you to know some of the facts of the Bible accurately. But God is not just in the habit of revealing things to us so that we can mull them over, pass judgment on them as to what we think about them and whether or not we choose to do them. No, God is in the habit of revealing things to us in his word because he wants to show us his plan for our lives. He wants us always, when we hear his voice, to have an open and submissive heart. And really, beloved, you know, we refer to an experience like this morning as a worship service. And we pray, that's part of our worship. The Bible tells us that. We give, that's part of our worship. The Bible tells us that. We have the scripture, all these different things. You can find verses in the Bible that clearly document that what we do comprises our worship. But you may say to yourself, well, I sit and listen during the message, so what am I doing? Preaching is a definite part of our worship service, but the part that all of us have, whether it's the preacher or the listener, is to respond to that. That's the purest form of worship that we can offer God as we listen to his word, whether we do it in church or whether we read it in our devotions or hear it in some other context, is to respond as God wants us to respond. So those are going to be the two thoughts that we look at here this morning. Well, we're going to concentrate for just a few moments. We won't take a lot of time, but on this revelation that Jesus gives to them in these verses. He reveals that his betrayal is at hand. He reveals that one of them sitting at the table is going to be the person who does that. Think about it for a little bit again. It really isn't something that they've ever contemplated before. There were perhaps occasions that they could have. 
Jesus told them in John chapter 6, verse 20, Have not I chosen you twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? That was before this time. So it's not as if there weren't maybe a few things that they could have responded to, but hmm, I can be fair to them. They might not have totally been able to, 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 to think of that, or it went over their heads, or other things were going on at the time. But this is just not something they were mentally prepared to hear. I mean, think about it. Put yourself in their shoes for a moment. These 12 had been together. What, three, three and a half years? Whatever the length of Jesus' public ministry was. We heard something about this in Sunday school this morning. They were together. In the case of some of them, they had left their occupations. They spent time with Jesus. As we heard in Sunday school, they were commissioned by Jesus. They went out. They were preachers of the word. They were given the power to work miracles. They all did these things. So far as they could tell, by looking at each other, they wouldn't know that there was a traitor there. They wouldn't know that there was one who was disloyal. To go further, they would never have guessed, as Jesus said, that one of them was actually a devil, that one of them really wasn't true. One of them was not genuine at all. One of them was more than a hypocrite. One of them was false, never truly born again. That's scary. That's shocking, really, when you think about that, that... that Many will say to me, Jesus said in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied on that, thy name? Have we not cast out devils in thy name? But he's the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart, and he looks at some and says, I never knew you. Depart from me. And how incumbent upon us it is to make our calling and election sure, to be certain that when we hear the gospel and we hear God's word, we know for an absolute fact that we've trusted Jesus Christ as our personal Savior. This is God's message, and that's the response that he wants to the gospel. But, you know, Jesus, of course, and this is to say the obvious, as true as all of what I've just said is, Jesus, of course, had a leg up on them in two ways, which is kind of what I want to talk about to develop just a little more about this idea of revelation. Do you know, Jesus, of course, knew the scriptures more than they could have ever hoped to. And so Jesus knew exactly what was going on in the first place because Jesus knew the scriptures. Well, again, this was referenced in Sunday school, but that Psalm 41 and verse 9, maybe we should just look at that once again so we can see it in the context of this morning's message. But Psalm chapter 41, uh, verse number 9, is the thing that was being quoted there. If you remember why I read in John's gospel, this is, the, this is the exact passage that, that Jesus uh, was saying to them there and is quoted. John preserves this, that he used the Scripture when he informed them. Just prior to informing them of this, he used the Scripture. Well, it says, David, of course, is the speaker, but it says, Yea, mine own familiar friend. Well, there's foreshadowings of this because David had it in his own life, right? Can you think of any people that were traitorous to David? Well, yeah, there was his counselor, Ahithophel, for one. There was his own son, Absalom, for another. So, but this, this proves to be messianic. This proves to be prophetic. There's something more going on, and the New Testament confirms that, that when David is speaking, it goes beyond just those occasions in his own life. Yea, mine own familiar friend, in whom I trusted, which did eat of my bread, 
hath lifted up his heel against me. And that's one reason I read the John 13 so that you could see. And Jesus, of course, has intimate knowledge of the Scripture. And so he sees through the eyes of the Scripture. But the Bible tells us something else. The Bible also tells us that Jesus knows what is in man. Now's when maybe you want to turn. I, I think it'll help if you actually look at this to John chapter 2. There's a, there's a startling illustration of this really in John's gospel because insofar as Jesus having a leg up on the disciples for two reasons, one is he knows the scriptures intimately, thoroughly. But beyond that, Jesus is omniscient. And this is what it says here, verse 23, right towards the end of the chapter. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover and the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. Well, do you think there's any room for some of those professions not being genuine? Well, look at the next verse. But Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men. And needed not that any man should testify of man, for he knew what is in man. He knows. He knows. And then, amazingly, the very next thing that follows is a story about Nicodemus. It's almost like we get another illustration of just how thoroughly the omniscience of God sees us, every detail. Because this man, Nicodemus, comes to Jesus by night. Why does he come by night? Because he's a member of the council. He knows it's not going to go over well with his compatriots to be going and talking to Jesus. And it, 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 it harks back to what we saw at the end of, of chapter 2. He says, Master, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do the miracles that thou... Miracles? No man can do the miracles that thou doest except God be with him. What does Jesus do? He doesn't even talk about the miracles. Doesn't even talk about that. Just goes right to the point because he knows what's going on in Nicodemus' heart. He knows that God the Holy Spirit has begun to trouble this man, has begun to work in this man's heart, and now Jesus is going to drive that point home. He's, and so he just, he doesn't talk about anything. It's almost like he didn't even hear what Nicodemus said, but of course he did. But he speaks right to the real need that Nicodemus, who comes under the cover of night because he doesn't want to really, he wants to say it, but he's not ready to say it. But Jesus says it. You know, your real need, Nicodemus, is you need to be born again. Mem being a member of the council, all the religious things in the world, they're great, but they're not going to get you into the kingdom of heaven. And he talks about the real condition and the real need of the heart of Nicodemus. Beloved, I think this is a great time for us this morning to be reminded that God, of course, the searching power of both the written Word of God and the living Word of God. Jesus is the living Word. I want to read to you a, a verse or so and, and tie this in with some things we've already said from Psalm 139. We think about Jesus as the living Word and the and the the searching power of the Word of God. Psalm 139, which is a, a fantastic place in the Old Testament that celebrates not just God's omniscience, but God's omnipresence, says in verse 1, O Lord, Thou hast searched me and known me. But he searched and knew Nicodemus. He searched and knew Judas. 
He knew all along what the condition of Judas's heart was. The searching power of the living word. We come down to verse 11 in the chapter and it says this, verse 11 of Psalm 139, If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me. That's what Nicodemus thought. If I say, surely the darkness cover shall cover me, even the night shall be light about me. You see, insofar as the searching power of the eye of God, the, uh, the, the searching power of the living word of God, all the darkness and all the light are just the same to God. It's as if any time God desires and all the time God knows, as if a searchlight were being shined into our hearts and he knows everything that's there. But you know the written word is the same way. What is it that the author to the Hebrews tells us in chapter 4 in verse 12? For the word of God is living and powerful. See, this isn't a dead book. Because the Holy Spirit takes these words and applies them and speaks to people through them. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing even to the dividing asunder of joints and marrow and of, the th- uh, and, and of the soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow and is a discerner. That's an interesting word. It's in the original. It's critic. It's the Greek word critic. It's the Greek word that we have our English word critic and is a critic and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Did you know God's your chiefest critic, but he's also your most accurate critic? At least God's fair. Now, a lot of people criticizing. I've lived my life with that. And I'm sure to some extent you've been ouched, if I can <laughs> invent a word. I'm sure you've been hurt by careless, inaccurate criticism. I sort of like, I hate the political a political illustration, but it's sort of like what President Trump said early on. You know, if don't have a problem. You got something to say, I did something wrong, or, or the speech wasn't good, or this, that's fine. But the fake news, I have a problem with. And, you know, it, it's, it's kind of that way, folks. It's it just it's something you have to live with in life. But God is our chief critic, but he's also a compassionate and accurate critic. Anything God has to say to us is always spot on, never meant to hurt us, never meant to be unkind, always meant to help us be more like his son. And so it is. I read something interesting this week when I was thinking about some of these thoughts for this morning. This is, to me, um, kind of startling, although I guess not when you observe and look around, but someone said that there was an international research company that did a survey in 2015, so what are we, four years ago. They came up with the fact that worldwide they estimated there were 245 million surveillance cameras and that it was increasing at the rate of 15% every year. I didn't do the math to figure out what that is now, but they're everywhere. Right? You know that. And if they're not there, somebody has a cell phone with a camera. And it's just, it's sort of amazing nowadays, the different things, you, you go to the news, things we would have never been able to see before because there were, was no news conference, there were no news crew there. But someone caught it on their cell phone 
camera. And many times, of course, that's been helpful to provide insight. Police have dash cams now. Police have body cams now in an effort to sort of protect everybody who's involved with a true and accurate record of, of what really takes place. But folks, I'm telling you, there's something that's more searching than any of that. That's, that's troublesome. I, it, to some extent, it's troublesome anyway. It's kind of one of those things where you can think of good things and bad things. I don't know if you saw this, but just this past week, there was a news story that said that the Pentagon is experimenting over, I don't know, 12, 13 states. And they, they have these, um, well, they call them balloons, but, you know, it's got to be something a whole lot more than what you and I are thinking of, something more than what was in the lobby, uh, you know, with some helium in it. Whatever sophisticated this thing is, thing this is, this balloon, it goes up and it goes way up, like they were saying, like in the 60s of thousands of feet. And what do they have? Surveillance cameras. And I was reading an article where, you know, the American Civil Liberties Union wasn't too happy about that because they were talking about, well, great, you know, so now they see who goes into a bar or now they see who go, does this or they see who does that. And, well, it's one of those things where somebody can tell you about all the good things they're doing with it, but in the back of your mind, you're thinking, well, you know, man has a fallen nature and sooner or later, somebody's going to get a hold of some of this stuff and something, some skullduggery is going to happen as a result of it. But it's a great opportunity for us out of this simple little narrative, this simple things that happens. Jesus drops this bombshell. He gives a revelation to them to be reminded that the living word, the written word, the searching power of the word of God, that God knows exactly what goes on in our lives. And it can be a, a source of great comfort to us to know that even when people don't understand us, even when people don't know where we are and what we go through and things we can't necessarily share. I, I'm always interested. It seems like there's always takers on Wednesday night when, when, when Brother Lee asks if there are unspoken requests. It's always takers. And probably some people don't even put their hands up that have plenty of them they could give you. But it just things we, we don't necessarily, but God knows about all those things. And I, I try to console myself and comfort myself with that. God knows. And God cares. Casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. God knows and God cares. But it has, it's, it's the sword with two edges, right? Sharper than any two-edged sword. There's also a point of conviction that balances the point of comfort because God sees you wherever you are. He knows what you're doing and he knows what you're thinking all the time. And God gives us that truth about himself in order to kind of help us toe the line. Stay away from things that we, we think we may be able to hide, but we can't. Ananias and Sapphira thought that they could hide. Boy, that didn't work. Well, it was like this scene here. I mean, Ananias and Sapphira came in there. They were in a context of other people who were doing the same thing, people who had been burdened by God to sell the land and bring the price and help the poor people and all that. And they came under color. They came under guise. They gave no hint that they were doing anything different of that very same thing. Peter accurately points out to them, it, it, it was yours. I mean, if, if God was only leading you to give 25% or 50% or whatever, you could have kept that part, no problem. The problem is coming, presenting yourself so that you get the same credit, so to speak, the same accolade, the same reputation of all the other people who are doing something far different. No one knew. 
Even Peter wouldn't have known if the Holy Spirit hadn't given him that insight. But God always has it. Let's talk about the response. I'm going to talk about this in two stages. First of all, we'll talk about the disciples as a group. Again, I'll come back. Shock, disbelief fills their hearts when they hear these words. In fact, I'm not so sure that we wouldn't be accurate to say, and I'm thinking especially of Peter, that there's once the shock of it gets over with, there's a tinge of anger in what he hears. Matthew tells us what their first response was as a group. Look at verse 22. He says here, And they were exceeding sorrowful. Well, beloved, you know what? That's healthy. That's healthy introspection. I have to think well of them. They say, Lord, is it I? And this kind of thing burdens them. It it causes them to be sorrowful and, and, and to be concerned. Sometimes God's Word does have a a sobering message for us. Sometimes God wants to get our attention. Sometimes He wants to point out areas that aren't right in our lives and wants us to respond in that way. They do. And then we read on that one by one they began to inquire, Lord, is it I? One by one. Kind of interesting when you look at this verse here. It should be clear enough. But it says in verse 22, and they were exceeding sorrowful and began every one of them. But if you read Mark's account, Mark, the translation in Mark reads one by one. Try to put yourself in that scene. I mean, they've just heard this incredible news that they can hardly accept. They're shocked beyond words. It brings great sorrow to them to think that that something like this is going to happen in their group, but it's like they can hardly believe it. They don't know what to do with it. And so it's like, There are just these quiet whispers as we think about these 12 men surrounding Jesus at this meal. And and it's like, is it I? Is it I? But they don't think so. They think they know their hearts. And this is the reason that I say that there's almost disbelief in this because when you you look at the, the way this is put together in the grammar, there's a little device that can be used so that the idea behind the question expects a no answer. And if we were, that's what you have here. So if we were going to try to bring that out, bring the force of what I've just explained to you out in an English translation, it would be something like this, that each one of them was saying sort of out loud and to the Lord, certainly not I, Lord, certainly not I. It can't be me, can it? But this is healthy on their parts that they do this. John tells us, and this is why we, it's helpful for us to know the John account. John tells us that somehow, despite what we read that Jesus goes on to say and what follows here in Mark's, uh, in the account in Matthew that we read, and it's a little difficult to try to process exactly the, the order of how all this takes place, but somehow Peter, It's not clear, and Peter prompts John, who's in closest proximity to Jesus, to ask who it is he's talking about. But nevertheless, then come those awful words, as we have it here in the account before us in Matthew, where Jesus says this, And he answered and said, He that dippeth his hand with me in the dish the same shall betray me. Well, you can understand why that might not be clear because they were probably all doing that at some point in the evening. That's how you had the meal. 
It's different than the sop. They were all probably dipping in and, and getting a part of this as they celebrated this time together. And that's not totally clear to them. And so Jesus goes on and tells us what part of his response to it is. The Son of Man, verse 24, goeth as it is written of him, as it is written. This is our point back again about the scripture. The Son of Man goeth as it is written of him, but woe unto that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It had been good for that man if he had not been born. Do you want to think about, we're sort of jumping ahead of ourselves. Do you want to think about how many times Judas heard Jesus and the disciples heard Jesus too pronounce that word woe? Jesus didn't use that idly. Jesus reserved that for the most solemn context and often in the context of eternal damnation. When he talked about those cities, woe unto thee Bethsaida, woe unto thee Chorazin. For if the mighty works which had been done in thee had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. And then he goes on and pronounces a judgment on those cities. It's a very serious word that Jesus here, but uses here. But somehow in the end, they never fully grasped what Jesus was saying. Even in the end, when, when Jesus, again, maybe we can assume hushed tones. Maybe we can assume that, that Peter sort of gets John's attention and says, ask him, ask him. And John asks him, and, and Jesus says, perhaps in a quiet kind of a voice, the one that I'm going to give the sop to. But somehow it's still not abundantly clear to them what's going on because when Jesus finally says to Judas, that thou doest, go do quickly. And Judas got up and left, and they're thinking, what's going on with him? And then they thought, well, he's got the bag. Jesus must have told him to go and, and get something that we still, still need for the meal, or Jesus must have told him to go and give something to the poor. They still didn't quite get it. They did later which is why I read that scripture in John that later they would remember this and they would believe as we saw there. Beloved, the point that I want to make at this point is when we think about the disciples as a group, their response to this revelation that is given to them is one of sorrow and searching. That's where you and I need to be when we hear God's word. If we hear something, God speaks to our heart, especially if God is speaking to us in a corrective measure, especially if God is chiding us in a loving way about some course of action or some thought pattern or some direction that's not right. Sorrow and searching is exactly how we always, the psalmist was praying, search me, O Lord, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. This is also from Psalm 139. But Judas, we come to him now. It's unclear whether Judas participates when the twelve ask, but one thing becomes clear enough. Soon enough, he asks for himself. That's what we have in our story in Matthew. Matthew is the only one, by the way, of the four who preserves both questions, tells us that Judas. And if you look at what Judas said in verse 25, it's identical except one word. They said, Lord, is it I? Judas said, Master, is it I? Kind of interesting, isn't it? The first thing I see in this is hypocrisy. Why do I say this? Because I already told you, the way this question is put together, 
He's doing the Ananias and Sapphira thing. He's asking exactly the same way that the others ask with sort of the idea that, no, it can't be. Lord, certainly not I, but he says, Master. Why I say this is sheer hypocrisy. This is the Ananias and Sapphira thing to the max. Well, all you have to do, you're in Matthew chapter 26, is back up a little bit. He already knew he'd gone to see the people about betraying Jesus. Look at verse 14. Then one of the twelve called Judas Iscariot went unto the chief priests and said unto them, What will ye give me and I will deliver him unto you? And they covenanted with him thirty pieces of silver. And from that time he sought opportunity to betray him. He knew. He knew, but he portrayed himself in the same light as the others with that question as if it can't be. It just can't be. When he knew full well, it most certainly was. Beloved, this is not the way to respond when God speaks. But it gets worse because even after hearing that awful warning that we read about in verses 23 and 24, and after we hear, he hears that horrible affirmation that Jesus gives, thou hast said. You, you may have looked at that before and thought, well, is Jesus equivocating here? Is he really saying yes? Yes, he's really saying yes. Once you study that expression out and you see the various contexts in which it's used, and, and you also go back and kind of study the phrase historically, this was a way of responding yes. It's just like you said, is, is how... If you really put the force to it, it would come out to us. Yes, it's as you said. Even though he hears that, then you'll notice one more thing happens, not recorded here, but in the story that we saw in John. He says to John, the one I give the sop to. And Jesus dipped the sop, gave it to Judas. In the custom of the day, if you're the host, which Jesus is acting in that role here, if you're the host and you offer something to one of your guests, it's considered an act of friendship. At the very end, and I would say, I think this is an accurate assessment, that this is probably the last act of grace that's given to Judas. He's been given all the warnings that he heard that night. He's, been heard, he's heard all of the sermons. He's gone out on all the preaching missions. He's done all these things, and he's come to this last moment. He's called on the carpet. He knows he's called on the carpet. He covers. He, he acts with sheer hypocrisy. But his final response is one of utter hardness because given the final opportunity, the very one whom he's going to betray he sat there and heard that same scripture that Jesus reminded them. My very friend who ate bread with me hath lifted up his heel against me. A final offer of grace. A final offer to change. A final offer to repent. No. Spurgeon said something about this. I love this illustration. You might want to listen in because I think you'll get a lot out of it and something useful to take with you. But he says, the hardening of a tender conscience is a gradual process. Something like the covering of a pond with ice on a frosty night. At first, you can scarcely see that freezing is going on at all. 
there are certain signs that a thoroughly practiced eye may be able to detect as portents of ice, but most of us would see nothing. By and by, there is ice, but it would scarcely support a pin. If you should place a needle on it ever so gently, it would fall through. In due time, you perceive a thin coating which might sustain a pebble. Soon a child trips merrily over it, and if old winter holds court long enough, it may be that a loaded wagon may be driven over the frozen lake, or a whole army may march without fear across the stream. There may be no rapid hardening at any one moment, and yet freezing is complete enough in the end. Apostates and great backsliders do not reach their worst at one bound. The descent to hell is sometimes a precipice, but more, more often a smooth and gentle slope. Fearful. Scary. Scary. Scary to think that you could be with Jesus I mean, if the measure of a man's responsibility, if, if a man's opportunity is the measure of his responsibility, it is no wonder that Jesus said it would be better if he had never been born. I shudder to think what hellfire holds for Judas Iscariot. I shudder enough to think what it holds for anybody. I really shudder to think what it must be for him. It's beyond the reckoning, beyond the ability really even to absorb his two responses, the disciples, the eleven, searching in sorrow, Judas, hypocrisy, and hardness. That's why I say and emphasized when I read that scripture, and he went out and it was night. Because that's all that's left really when you turn your back on the light. And Jude tells us these are people for whom the mists of darkness are reserved forever. If you reject the light, only the darkness is left. Two responses. Sorrow and searching on the one hand, hypocrisy and hardness on the other hand. One of them ensures the continued working of God's grace. Searching in sorrow means that God is working with us and will continue to work with us as we are open to his word. Hypocrisy and hardness eventually shuts us off from God's grace completely. I had several things I wanted to share, but in the interest of time, I guess I'll cut to the chase. I, I've often thought to myself, you know, I don't much believe in coincidences. I made the remarked to you before that a coincidence is simply when God chooses to remain anonymous. But Thursday or Friday night one, we sat down to read devotions, and I already had this sermon done and prepared. I already had some other things I was going to use at the end. We sat down and were reading a devotion. Dr. DeHaan wrote the devotion. It so happened that the devotion was on Hebrews 4, 7. Today, and I had looked at these scriptures in preparation for the message, just had chosen not to use them. Today, if you hear his voice, harden not your hearts. 
And he went on to talk about a few things, and finally he got down to the point that he told a story, as often is the case in those devotions. It was about a young man in Scotland, and God had chosen to work early in his, in his being a young adult. God had spoken to him about his soul. God had spoken to him about the need of Christ. And it was as if his response to God was, no, not now. I need to get out and make my mark in the world. He was thinking about success. And sure enough, he went out and he built a big mill. It was a, as a tremendous success. And God in grace spoke to him again. It's almost as if God called his bluff. You said, all right, you need to go and have your success. You've had some success. Now what about everlasting life? What about your soul? But then, as is so often the case, he thought to himself, no, I'm too busy now. I'm busy with everything I'm doing. I don't have time for this now. Not too long after that, he was taken of a sudden illness. His wife, perhaps knowing of these events, was very concerned, fearful. She called for the preacher. The preacher came and was trying to speak to him, but all he could really mumble back in return, listen to this, this is scary. To the minister, this is what he said, all I can hear is the clanging of the machinery in my mill. I seem to see Jesus speaking, but I can't hear him. I see his lips moving, but I can't hear what he says for the noise of the machinery. And he continued in his delirium until he slipped out into eternity, so far as anyone knew, without Christ. Searching in sorrow, that's right where we need to be. Hypocrisy and hardness is a dangerous, dangerous, dangerous place to be. May God encourage us, help us in our Christian lives, to be open and honest with the one with whom we have to do. Father, I pray you'll bless us here today and encourage us.